0: All right, I love getting to hear part of Rachel's story. She is connected to our Lewis Center campus and being commissioned there today to go on uh, a uh, longer-term trip uh, in uh, Southern Africa. And so as a church family, we have the privilege to continue praying for her and uh, with our many other uh, missionaries that we are involved with here at LifePoint. And as a reminder, when uh, you are here and you call this church your home church, as we participate in giving regularly, we are helping to support uh, workers like Rachel around the world who are about God's kingdom making Jesus famous around the world. And if you'd like some more information about her, what she's doing, or any of our other short-term trips that we have coming up uh, through LifePoint, you can talk with uh, Jason after our service today. All right, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here alongside Jason Phillips, who is our Campus Life pastor. We're grateful that you are here with us today. Let me say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you, thank you. Uh, if this is your first time here, one of the easiest ways to begin finding out a little bit more information about LifePoint or maybe what your role looks like uh, or a next step for you in this church family, the easiest way to uh, get some more information is to take out your smartphone and you can scan one of the QR codes that's right on the seat in front of, me, uh, in front of you. Uh, and what you'll find there, uh, it'll be take you to a landing page. There is a welcome card. We'd love for you to take a moment just to fill that out. Uh, that welcome card helps us follow up with you later on in the week. We'd love to hear your story and share a little bit more about what we believe God has called us to here at LifePoint Worthington. You're also going to find a page for uh, sermon notes, and I'd encourage you today, of all, out of any of the other uh, messages I've preached here so far, the last 12 weeks, uh, today's going to be a day you may want to check out those sermon notes. There's going to be some links I talk about to other pages, and uh, it's, I worked really hard on it, so I'd appreciate a high <laughs> click rate, okay? That's what this is really about. Uh, Also, I'll just make mention that last night my entire family was throwing up with the stomach bug. So I am not trying to be reserved from anybody, but y'all don't want to touch me or be near me today. (laughs) So uh, let's see between the caffeine, the adrenaline and the stomach bug who wins uh, today. All right, um, let's get started. We are in a new year, so we are in a new series at LifePoint that I'm really excited about. This series is called Broken Mirrors. Uh, and each week in this series, we're going to be looking at an iconic passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews, sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith, because the author of Hebrews holds up these examples of people from the Old Testament and uses it as an example of what a faithful life looks like. It is a fascinating section in the Bible, if you've ever read it. It will take you down a ton of different rabbit trails, some of which we're going to explore over the next couple weeks. But if you were to look at all of the characters that show up in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and, and read about their stories, you're going to find some. Uh, you're going to find some pretty messed up stories, right? There's some tragic, broken uh, people uh, who somehow can be held up not as an example of perfection but an example of how God is able to use broken people to reflect his own perfection. And in that way, his people, we, become like broken mirrors. And so what you'll hear me say each week is that broken people reflect a perfect God, which, as we're gonna see today, is, is, is more than just a nice way of saying, pretty condescendingly, don't worry, God can still use you. No. To say that broken people reflect a perfect God is the liberating reality that as a follower of Jesus, you are unshackled from your shame, free to be used by God in spite of any perfections you have, any blemish that you have, not for your glory, but for His. And so uh, we're, we're not hitting every story in Hebrews 11. Uh, But we've picked a few that reflect our five core values here at LifePoint. Gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and personal ministry. And today we're going to be talking about that first one, gospel identity, the idea that in Jesus we are made new, given a new way and new kind of life as a son or daughter of the living God. Now it's going to take us a minute to get there. I promise we will get there. I'm not going to forget about that point, but I think the story we're looking at today is actually actually a profound picture of our gospel identity. So, before we get going, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we acknowledge that uh, we are in this place, in this room today, because you are uh, somehow, somewhere at work in our lives. Maybe we have been following you for years and this is part of our normal rhythm on a Sunday morning. We gather with our church family and celebrate the risen Jesus and we uh, experience the gospel as good news of great joy and we have much to celebrate today. Maybe today is a very heavy Sunday. Uh, Lord, where we just kind of feel disoriented, maybe it's looking at uh, the new year, not knowing what is going to happen as this next year unfolds, or still maybe we're reeling from what has happened in the last couple weeks or the last year, and so Lord, maybe today some of us feel a bit more like a mess, and we don't know fully what we're doing here, but uh, God, we are promised in your word that as we gather, you promise to meet us. And so I pray that you speak powerfully to us from your word in our time this morning. Lord, we're also grateful for uh, the many, many other gospel preaching churches uh, around uh, central Ohio. Lord, we are grateful for their partnership in the gospel. We thank you that you are one uh, who works through multitudes. And so, Lord, we pray for uh, blessing on those churches that are gathering now uh, to exalt Jesus uh, who love the gospel and want to see his name made famous in this city and beyond. But we're grateful for your kindness to us in Jesus, we pray all these things in his name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Let's take a look real quick at this Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We're only gonna hang out there for a minute, so if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to Genesis chapter four, that's where we're gonna spend most of our time today. Uh, Hebrews 11 will be on the uh, screens behind me though. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1, let's just get our bearings here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is, what is seen was not made out of things that are uh, visible Now, what are we looking at here at the beginning of Hebrews 11? Well, the book of Hebrews, you have to know this, is a notoriously tricky book in the New Testament to follow. There's, there's a lot of what we might call insider language in the book of Hebrews. First of all, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We, we don't know who wrote it. It probably wasn't a letter written by Paul. That's my opinion. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of good evidence uh, to suggest that this really wasn't a book or a letter at all. More of a sermon that was written down and passed Along, That's beside the point. We can chat about that later. Best we can tell, though, is that the book of Hebrews, was the original audience was made up of followers of Jesus who had come from the Jewish community. And so when I talk about insider language in this, uh, I'm talking about how the author will make a quick reference to a story and assume that his audience knows exactly what he's talking about and all the nuances of that story. He'll touch on it and go on to something else. And sometimes we're left wondering, like, What the heck was the point of that uh, as we look at this uh, book? And it would have been like if I make today, if I make like a passing reference to the 4th of July, Right? Many of you would have a whole series of stories uh, that you might think through. You might think through things that you have done since you were a kid on the 4th of July every year. There's like this emotional attachment sometimes to just throwing out a date. I don't have to talk about anything else about it. I can throw that date up and there's like this shared collective understanding of what I might be referencing. That's what happens in the book of Hebrews all the time. The author brings up a whole series of stories without going into much detail, assuming that we are all super familiar with what he's talking about. Now what we need to do, the challenge for us, uh, is because we are often not as familiar with uh, the details of the stories he references, we're gonna dive into each one of these and kind of explore the different nuances of what he might be talking about. That brings us to uh, Hebrews 11 chapter, or Hebrews 11 verse four, which is the first story referenced in this hall of fame of faith. Let me read it. He says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. One verse, he moves on to something else, and we're kind of left wondering, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Now, uh, I think this is where we're going to uh, dive in uh, to another part uh, of uh, the, the biblical text. So open with me to Genesis chapter four. We're gonna spend a lot of our time there. Genesis chapter four. And before we can really get into this story, uh, I, I think it'd be helpful to step back uh, and just uh, get a greater perspective about what the book of Genesis is as a whole, which will really be helpful for us when we're making sense of what is really this odd little story that we have in chapter four. Now, we're gonna go to the classroom for a minute, but I promise we will, en- we will end up in church real soon. Okay. So a couple things to keep in mind, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You may n- know this already, but it is also the first book of a collection uh, of books in the Old Testament, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch, penta meaning five. It is, it, it's the collection of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, if we read these books today, and many of us have, uh, have done that before, uh, I mean, let's be honest. It's a little bit of a grind to try and get through all five of those books, right? There, there's some really well-known stories like Moses and the Exodus, but it also feels like there's a lot of rules and regulations that we can kind of get bogged down and trying to make sense of, uh, towards, the end of uh, towards the end of those uh, stories. But what we need to see is that the Pentateuch as, as a whole uh, is not just a history book. It's not the, the, the Pentateuch is is one ongoing story, right? And the closer you look at it, what you'll find uh, is not just this ancient law code, but you will find this literary masterpiece with themes and stories that interact and interlock with each other. Now, I'm gonna try and draw some of that out today, right? Because I want you to look at this story and kind of be, like, amazed at the beauty of what's being articulated here, some stuff that we normally just pass right over, right? And at the beginning of Genesis... You remember, you, we, we have these like grand stories that dominate the landscape of the Old Testament narrative. Some of them that we may be very familiar with. The, uh, the story of creation, of Adam and Eve, and uh, the fall, the serpent, and the tree of knowledge, of, uh, and Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel. Some of the most well-known stories in the Bible find their place right at the beginning of Genesis. But in an interesting way, uh, what we also have with the first 11 chapters of Genesis is something like a table of contents for the rest of the Pentateuch, really the rest of the Old Testament. You'll see some of the most moving themes of the Bible put on display in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, almost as if God himself were saying to anyone who reads this, hey, this is what my story is all about. But that's what we have really in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that brings us to this somewhat uh, odd account of two brothers in chapter 4, Cain and Abel. A story that the author of Hebrews holds up and says, This is a picture of faith. Our question is, why? Now, let me set the scene here. Might feel like I'm getting in the weeds, but what what I'm trying to do is draw out that there's something beautiful interwoven into this story. Let me set the scene here, because I want us to feel the brokenness of this story. Adam and Eve, all right, you may remember, created in the Garden of Eden, and they were given a job in that garden. Look with me at Genesis chapter two, verse uh, fifteen. It's on the screen behind me. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden uh, of Eden to work it and to keep it. Look at those two uh, phrases right at the end, to work it and to keep it. That's what he has created them to do in the garden. It's interesting, when you look at uh, Genesis in the original language, which is Hebrew and not English, uh, you you find some color that begins to pop in this story, things that we may not see right away. Through the rest of the, uh, the Old Testament, really. These words, to work it and keep it, these words show up pretty often, but they usually mean something more like worship and obey. In other words, what what Genesis 2 is saying here is that they've been created to thrive in the garden with their God, in, in right relationship with him. They were made in God's image to reflect who he was, and yet, At the uh, insistence of the serpent, they take and eat from the only tree that they were told not to. It's the first recorded act of rebellion against the creator, which ushers in this curse upon them, their offspring, which is us, and, and the land. And while they were created to work and keep the land, to worship and obey... What you see in Genesis is this, this interesting play on words that uh, happens as they are now expelled from the garden, and those same two words are used to describe their life outside of thriving in the garden. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse 23. Therefore the Lord uh, God sent them from the garden of Eden to work, which he's already defined as toil early on in Chapter three, he drove out the man and uh, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard or to keep, same Hebrew word there, them from the tree of life. In other words, what they were created to do, to worship, to obey, to to work and keep has now been flipped on its head and now this is the very evidence of uh, life under the curse for them. We will see these words again in our story as evidence that this whole thing is dripping with the curse of sin. And in chapter four, where we are at today, we are confronted with what life outside of Eden looks like, life under the curse. And if this were a movie, okay, you, you might expect all of the vibrant colors of Eden to fade into black and white, like film noir, okay? That's what happens in chapter four. And this is where we hear from the first person after the fall. Look at uh, chapter four, verse one. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Which you may not have ever given much thought to that phrase before, uh, if you've uh, read it, other than thinking that's kind of an odd way to say you had a boy, okay? Uh, but again, when we look at the original language here, the, the, the Hebrew, something pops out to us that we might not otherwise see. And in, in Hebrew, all, all she says is, I have obtained a man, the Lord. And that it sounds even stranger to us, right? But wh- why does that matter? Well, it lets us know that Eve, in chapter four, Eve is thinking specifically about what God had just promised to her in chapter 3, that God would give her an offspring that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. More than that, it sets up this theme that we're going to see uh, through the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the Old Testament of God promising something and then that person going on to take, uh, to, to take that promise or try and obtain that promise for themselves to, to make it happen of their own account. So she says, See, I, I got a man. I, I did it. Chapter 3 is fulfilled. Let's move on. She has Cain, who interestingly enough is called a worker of the ground. Remember those words we looked at earlier. And then she has a second son, Abel, who is a shepherd. Look with me at verse three. In the course of time, it's the Hebrew way of saying once upon a time. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit uh, of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, there's some interesting questions that come up with this passage, right? Like, what was wrong with Cain's offering? I mean, it's described the same way. What's wrong with his? What made Abel's better than his? Probably nothing, so why did God reject Cain's? Well, what we see as we keep reading this story is something is revealed about Cain's heart posture in his response to God, God's rejection of his offering. Not, not only is he angry at God, uh, but he takes out his rage on his brother Abel. And when they are out in the field again, we're told Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And just like with Adam and Eve, uh, first in the garden, God approaches uh, Cain knowing full well what has just happened, uh, and he says, you know, w- where's your brother? Where's your brother? And his response, thinking that he can actually hide what, what has happened, he says, um, I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's that same Hebrew word we looked at earlier. This whole thing is dripping with the curse sin. This, this is the first murder, the taking of life that was given as a gift from God, taking life that was created in the image of God as a reflection of God himself in the created world. And, and like his parents, Adam and Eve before him, Cain now sits under the right judgment of God. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, uh, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And I think the whole story hinges on what happens next. Right, depending on how we understand Cain's next words, we will end up with very different ideas about what this story is about first. I want you to see though, look at verse 14. Uh, Cain is absolutely sure that God's response will end in his death that what happens to him now will end in his death that whoever or whatever finds him will kill him he says this behold you've driven me today uh, away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me that's what Cain is worried about and that seems to make sense of what he says in verse 13 my punishment is greater than I can bear seems reasonable but it sounds a bit like he's complaining. Right? Complain, like complaining about the consequence that he's getting for what he's done. I mean, on a much smaller level, I can't help but think about how my son Malachi often responds when I tell him like, buddy, you, you did this thing, you can't play with your Legos anymore tonight. And he, he just, he collapses in utter despair, you know, proclaiming like I can, you mean I can never play with my Legos again? And he's, you know, he's, he's devastated. And you can almost see this same kind of thing playing out with Cain in this conversation with him and God right now. It's like Cain is throwing a tantrum, right? They say, it's too much for me, I can't do that. And you're like, bro, you just you just killed your brother, okay? He says it's too much for him, and then he kind of looks like God capitulates a little bit, right, that he decides like, he's got, got to pick his battles. And so he's going to not be as heavy handed. Look at verse 15. The Lord said, not so, not so. Calm down. It's okay. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord puts a, put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And this whole thing kind of wraps up with God having mercy on this guy who just murdered his brother. It's a little bit of a weird story, but you know, it was like, couple thousand years ago, so we check it off the reading list and move on to the next passage, okay? That's how we normally uh, treat this uh, story. But I think there might be something more going on here, something more significant than we realize. Look at Cain's response again in verse 13. Look at his response again in verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. And again, with with this story, Remember, we, we, we're, we're looking at a story that takes place in a culture and context that is so far removed uh, from our own today. And so even some of the, the language and the nuance of how this story is told, when we bring it into the English language, we, like, we rip it out of its culture sometimes. And so sometimes with Genesis, it's helpful to go back and really wrestle uh, as best we can with the original language of what, what was said there. And there's another small translation problem here in verse 13. Uh, it, it is absolutely possible uh, to translate the Hebrew word here for, uh, that, that's brought over as punishment as punishment, so that he says, my, my punishment is too much for me to bear. But, that's not what the word usually means. In fact, in almost every other instance that this word shows up in the Old Testament, it has a different idea. It usually means uh, guilt. Or the sometimes the word is iniquity, the the impact of sin on your life. Which might sound like a subtle difference at first, but the more you think about it, I I mean, I think this radically changes our perspective on this story. Because if that's how we're supposed to translate that word, then all of a sudden, you see, Cain may not be complaining about the severity of his punishment, He's wrecked by the guilt that he feels over what he's done. He says, my guilt is too much for me to bear. And this, I think, actually makes so much more sense out of the rest of this passage. This, uh, in a way, is like Cain's repentance over what he's done. It's his acknowledgement that that he he says, I've got blood on my hands. It's like he comes to the realization all at once. It's too much for me to bear. The weight of what he has done is consuming him. I mean, he can't bear up under it. He is crushed by the reality of his own sin. And, and doesn't this make God's response then look different too? I mean, instead of him giving in to a complaining child, I mean, I think it starts to look much more like this nuanced picture of forgiveness and restoration for Cain, see, forgiveness does not mean that there's, you know, no consequence for our actions. Cain still has to live with the reality and impact of what he has done. But in his acknowledgement of it before God, God's posture is remarkably different. See, Cain's banishment and wandering, he says, will not lead to his death. But God promises to preserve Cain even through the consequences he experiences. God promises to give him a mark, a a sign that symbolizes his status as as being a part of God's people and even allows Cain to find a, a dwelling place. Look at verse 16. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, he, he, he settled. I mean, that is one of the most important words in the Old Testament, to, to settle, to dwell. God gave him a dwelling place. He's not gonna be a fugitive and wanderer anymore. I mean, even that is uh, restored in his uh, relationship with God. He's given so much more than he could have imagined. He, he's given the land to settle in, right? Uh, more than that, he, he, he is, well, he's banished from his community God restores even what he lost in that. An entire city at the end of the story is built up around Cain. I mean, friends, this is a remarkable story about the way sin and brokenness infects the the world around us, those in it, but it also shows us this incredible picture of a God who responds to that brokenness. And I'll be honest, as as I've been kind of working on this message the last couple weeks, studying and praying and reflecting on this story, I, I've been absolutely gripped by Cain's life. Absolutely gripped by Cain's life, and man, I, I see so many parallels to him, the feeling of being crushed under the recognition of what his life is and what, what he has done I see so many parallels in my own life. and I think in the Christian life in general. I just can't look away from that response. My guilt is too much for me to bear. Because I know what that feels like. I know what saying that feels like. What it feels like to be under the crushing weight of guilt over what I've done, over what I've said, the crushing weight of seeing how I have hurt others around me, some of the people I love. Some of you know that well, too. The feeling of intense shame over what has happened in your life things you've ne- you'd never want to talk about, things that you'd rather keep out of sight because maybe, just maybe, that old adage is true that uh, if it's out of sight long enough, eventually it will be out of mind, but it I mean, never really seems to work that way. I think so many of us uh, walk through this life being crushed of the weight of guilt for what we, we wish we would have done instead, or uh, shame over the things that we, we feel like just we blew it. And then like Cain, I feel like I can foolishly or foolishly think I can keep these things tucked away in the corners of my soul and that they won't spill out and play out in the rest of my relationships, that I can keep them hidden from anyone else around me that I can keep them hidden from God himself. And yet here's what I love so much about this story. I wonder if you picked up on this. God actually wants to talk with Cain. This is a guy who just murdered his brother. He wants to talk with Cain. Before Cain even opens up his mouth, God already knows what's happened. He doesn't need the details because he knows the details. And if you look carefully uh, in the story, Cain never gives the details of what happened, even though God said, hey, hey, what happened? He didn't get the details because God doesn't need to know uh, what what happened. Friends, I want you to think about it this way. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, Lord of all creation, he desires relationship with you. He already knows. He already knows all the details of my life. He knows all the details of your life. He knows every single thing you think you could brag about. He knows every single thing that I think I'd rather keep hidden from everybody else. He knows it all and he still desires relationship. I mean, that is why he comes to Cain. That is why he pursues a conversation. That is why Jesus even uh, approaches us. And just like with Cain's confession, I mean, God God invites us to say back to him what he already knows to be true of us. He lovingly invites us to say back to him what he already knows to be true of us. Let me ask you this. How do you envision, how do you envision uh, that kind of conversation that Cain and God had? How would you envision it if it were you? And I'm going to call you to use your imagination for a moment. God says, what have you done? What tone do you hear God speak to you in? What look does he have on his face? It's interesting to me in the story uh, of Cain that uh, we're told Cain is angry with God. He's angry with God. He's angry with his brother. And if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, you'll, you'll find this phrase the anger of the Lord, or God was angry. You, f- you find that phrase 475 times. But you don't find it here. You don't find it here. Instead, we, we find one who is like a loving, tender, kind, and gracious father. God's response to Cain, I mean, he's dripping with grace. He, he is unbelievably kind, unimaginably forgiving as he takes the weight uh, of Cain's guilt off of his back, the guilt that was crushing him. He takes the weight off of Cain's back and places it squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. In fact, this is what God has done with all of our guilt, with all of our shame, while our actions and uh, our guilt should have resulted in our punishment, in our judgment that is too great for us to bear. God graciously steps into our place through the person and work of Jesus to take on the punishment that we deserve, to take on the death uh, that, that we have earned in our place for our sin on the cross, only to rise again from the dead, victorious over guilt victorious over shame victorious over sin and death and now do you see I said we were going to talk about gospel identity today it's because that relationship between a loving father and a child is the picture of our status before God it is, it is the gospel identity that we have as followers of Jesus that we are no longer enemies and rebels against God. No, by faith in Jesus, pledging our allegiance to him and him alone, we find that we are in a brand new kind of relationship, restored relationship with our God. We are in his family. We are marked by him, for him. We are called out as his children, and so my question today, as we, we scan over the, uh, the remainder of uh, a new year, my question from this passage is, like Cain, will we experience that kind of restored relationship with God? Will we live in the gospel identity offered to us through Jesus. Maybe that's a question you need to write down for this week or this month. Am I living in my gospel identity? Am I actually living in my gospel identity? For some of you here today, you know that this is not the kind of relationship you have uh, with, with God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you you know that uh, you have uh, maybe had questions for a long time or have been uh, just kind of uh, pushing away maybe what you sense God might be doing in in your life and in the world, or uh, maybe just not sure what you believe at all about Jesus. I think this story does hit on something that is real for every single one of us regardless of uh, our uh, faith background at all. This uh, passage shows us and invites us to consider what do we do in our life with our guilt and our shame that crushes us. Maybe you're in the camp that's tried the advice of uh, our prevailing culture right now of uh, learning how to forgive yourself and just move on and maybe you have found too uh, that you can say that for a couple months, you can say that for a couple years but it doesn't actually allow you to do what it promises to do. You still feel gate, uh, the, the guilt and weight of something in your life. Friends, the offer of the gospel is that by faith, In Jesus, the weight of your guilt, the weight of your shame is transferred off your back and on to his. Maybe today is the day that you say, that's what I need. Today may be the day where you say, "I, I, I need to become a follower of Jesus and experience the new life, the new way of life offered to you through him. We'd love to talk with you about what that looks like to simply say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe you've been following Jesus for many years. And right now at the beginning of a new year, this is a good time for a, a, a checkup. And, and here's the question again. Are you living in the gospel identity you have in Jesus? How can you tell? How can you tell if you're doing that? I mean, th- th- this, is not an e- this is not a question anybody else can answer for you. Right? But, but I think that there are some ways to discern where you are at. And k- keep in mind, this is a desperately hard question uh, to answer. Like, to, to answer the question, am I living my gospel identity? It's not a one word answer. I'm going to challenge you to take some time this week, carve out some time to ask yourself this is desperately hard. One of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, once said the real challenge in following Jesus is to really believe the things that we so easily say we believe. There's a few questions I think you can ask yourself to probe uh, this question, whether you're really living in the gospel identity you have in Jesus. Here's the first one. Imagine, uh, again, imagine again, uh, that you are having this same type of confession, conversation with God that Cain had in verse 13. Go through that exercise And how do you imagine God uh, responding to you in that moment? One pastor, AEW Tozer, said that what comes to our mind when we first think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you imagine that conversation, is he angry with you? Is he disappointed with you? Is he annoyed that you're still working through this thing that you, you, you have said, I'm, I'm done, I'm not going back to that, and yet here you are again? Does he care at all? Or do you see him as Jesus described him to us? Like the loving father who knows what you need before you even open up your mouth to ask, who delights to give good gifts to his children, who is gracious and merciful, overflowing with steadfast love. Here's the second question. When we're living in the gospel identity that we have in Jesus, that that shapes the way we engage in all of our relationships, all of our relationships. It makes me think, like how am I responding uh, to my kids as their father, as a husband to my wife, as a son to my parents. And so the question is, as you think about your relationships, are you responding to others the way your heavenly father responds to you? You're responding to others the way your heavenly father responds to you. And again, you can find all these questions detailed in the notes. Finally, living uh, in the gospel identity, living in your gospel identity will catalyze a greater desire for you to deepen your relationship with your heavenly father. And so here's the question, On the cusp of a new year, what are you doing in your life now to grow in your relationship with God? Is there some practice in the new year that you need to make a conscious decision to embrace, a plan for your devotional life, a pattern of sharing your faith? Maybe this is the year where you say, hey, I've been a part of, uh, away from community with other followers of Jesus for too long, I need to make a priority to be in a life group this year. In the notes, I've included some links to a few resources that I think will help you answer uh, these questions. I have some some Bible reading plans that you can find there, a a spiritual inventory that you can take about a half hour out of your morning to to just run through. I have a few book recommendations. And like, like I said, there's no way, there's no way for me to assess where you're at in your life right now. But we can encourage one another to live in our gospel identity. And I think the story of Cain and Abel is this profound, profound reminder both of the reality of our brokenness that we can feel crushed under it but also the unbelievable kindness of our God that shows us in Jesus you are unshackled from your shame and welcomed home as a son or daughter of God. I love how one artist recently uh, wrote this and sings about it, Corey Asbury. Uh, he says, lay your, bu- your burdens down here in the Father's house and check your shame at the door because it ain't welcome anymore here in the Father's house. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. We're thankful that you know As our Father, you know what we need before we even open up our mouths to ask. And as a loving Father, you delight to give good gifts in your children. Some of us have been walking around for too long professing that we know you and want to follow you and yet we we have continued uh, to carry on ourselves our guilt and our shame. So perhaps today is the day we finally uh, lay these burdens down before you. That we too would be welcomed home as a son and daughter of the living God. We thank you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.